1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On today's show, first up, Twitter has a new CEO, and he's also the old CEO, and he'll now be running two different companies. Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent and a frequent co-host on Alpha Chat, talks about the return of Jack Dorsey with a couple of FT journalists who have been following the story for quite some time. Second, FT Alphaville hosted a pub quiz. For its readers in New York on Wednesday night, along with a very special guest, former Fed chair, Paul Volcker, and our very own producer, Amy Keene, hosted a box pop segment in which she asked people who attended what they thought about the Fed in China. She got a lot of fun and colorful responses. And then finally, we're going to play another clip from my long chat with Martin Wolf, the entirety of which we are also releasing today on Alpha Chatterbox, our new long form only podcast, also about economics. And business. It was a great conversation, and we'd love it if you subscribed. Again, that's Alpha Chatterbox. But for now, let's get on with today's show.
0: I'm Shannon Bond, the FT's US media correspondent in New York, and I'm joined on the line by Hannah Kushler, our San Francisco correspondent, and from London, Andrew Hill, our management editor. And we're gonna talk about Jack being back. Jack Dorsey, one of the co-founders of Twitter, is back in the hot seat as CEO, but there's a twist. He is also still CEO of another company, Square, the payments provider that he also founded. So Hannah, let's start with talking about what exactly happened here. Can you give us a rundown of what has led Jack uh, to be back at the top?
2: Yeah, keeping this brief is tricky because there's been a bit of a saga, a management saga at Twitter that has gone on for the whole nine years it's existed. Jack has been was obviously the co-founder, the inventor of the tweet, but he also has been CEO before. He has had problems sort of managing his other responsibilities at the same time as being CEO before. My favourite quote from the whole saga is in this book, Hatching Twitter about it, Ev Williams, the other co-founder, apparently once sat Jack Dorsey down and said, you know, you have to decide, Jack. Either you can be a dressmaker or you can be CEO of Twitter, um, which was about him spending a lot of time on his ex- Extracurricular dressmaking activities. I think he may have given that up now because he also as you said now has another company Square which is a payments company where he spent the majority of his att- attention in the last few years. Now he has been executive chairman of Twitter for some time so he's always been involved with his original company but he came back properly as interim CEO in July. Now this was after Dick Costello the last CEO who was around for five years stepped down. Um, and- tell, tell us what happened there
0: with what the board said they were doing in terms of looking for a new CEO?
2: Yeah, so what they said was we really want a full-time CEO Um, and, you know, they haven't
0: full-time met somebody who did not have another job on the side?
2: Yeah, and not just another job, another CEO job, which is, you know, normally quite a hefty responsibility. Um, but yes, yeah, so they so he came in because Dick Costello had sort of seemingly not been able to address some of the company's problems. Its user growth was still um, sort of slowing, which people worried might, you know, affect its prospects in the longer term. Wall Street had kind of bet on it being a bit more of a Facebook-sized company than it it is um, and the stock was down well, now I think it's down about 50% so far this year so it was it was about the same then I think. Um, so yes they, they said we want a full-time CEO uh, but they went through a big search they looked at other candidates we don't know exactly who they say about a, a couple of dozen and they decided that Jack as the founder as this kind of product genius that he's been cast of was still the best person to lead despite also having another job.
0: He's made no indication that his role at Square is going to change. So, Andrew, sort of from the management point of view, what do you make of this? I mean, how difficult is it to potentially to be juggling these two CEO roles at two, you know, pretty significant and potentially, you know, growing companies?
3: Well, I think it looks pretty crazy to me. Actually, I don't see any way in which he can be full-time CEO of two companies, however large they are or small they are, and they're both they're both pretty big. Uh, yeah. As I understand it, Square is readying for an IPO. So that's something which is going to cast obviously more investor attention onto it. And at the same time, Twitter's got many, many well-publicized problems that need dealing with. I mean, if I were a shareholder, I would be, I would be pretty worried, no matter how superhuman uh, Jack Dorsey is.
0: And we've seen, I mean, sort of some of the people who are, who are defending this decision have said, you know, look, Steve Jobs did this you know, at, at Pixar and Apple. Is that a fair comparison, Andrew?
3: Well, obviously, Steve Jobs was pretty exceptional. I mean, I think that uh, Jack Dorsey may be exceptional too. But I I do think that in both those cases, um, you have companies that are in different phases. And both Square in its way and Twitter in its are companies that need some attention. I mean, attention in the case of coming up for an IPO. Square has also um, done the pivot a couple of times. Change from consumer-facing to being uh, more of a, a business-to-business uh, company. Uh, so there are obviously challenges for it ahead, and uh, and Twitter is is a company that requires uh, equal attention. I would have said. Um, I think it's hard to do um, a job as a part-time CEO at any company, and I can't just see how he's going to be able to devote himself. Full time. I, ga- I gather Hannah would know this. I'm not in San Francisco, but th- they are at least in opposite buildings, so he could just shuttle between the two <laughs> by crossing yeah. the street. He Doesn't have to go anywhere in order to to deal with the uh, problem. But I don't think it's it's not just down to vision. Lots of people are saying he's a visionary. We don't need a full time operator. You need a full time visionary. Was one of the quotes that uh, we had. I think it's much, much, much more complicated than that.
0: Hannah, what's the reaction been like, uh, both sort of within the company and maybe and among shareholders?
2: So the reaction has been quite mixed. I think, you know, people like certainty. There was this period over the summer, no one knew who was going to lead Twitter, how long this search process was going to go on for. So the shares did rise originally on the day that it was announced. And they have, you know, they are up this week still. Um, but, you know, there has also been criticism. A couple of shareholders have said, they'll only put up with an arrangement like this for a year or two, or even that they will be talking to the company about this and and criticizing them because they are worried about the kind of attention. Now the company would say, well, you know, it's, we also have Adam Bain. So Adam Bain was the kind of second internal candidate for the job. He's head of revenue. Very
0: popular within Twitter, right?
2: So popular that there was a hashtag trending a while ago called Adam Bain is so nice. Um, um, And everyone and had to, you know, their stories of Adam Bain hold, holding the door open for them etc etc and he is actually you know I've met him I've interviewed him he is a nice guy but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that he, that he can run the company um, in Jack's absence um, he has done well on revenue but you know the company's problems are actually not been on the revenue side they have been on the kind of product and user growth side
0: so Jack's been back now for a couple months as interim CEO. You know, Are, are we already seeing indications of, of the new direction he's trying to set for the company?
2: So very cleverly, Twitter made a big announcement the day after it announced that Jack um, was going to become permanent CEO. And it launched um, Moments, which is a new product that they've kind of been working on for some time. People who follow this closely will know it as Project Lightning, which is what it was called internally. And it's basically trying to Get some of the great content that is on Twitter, whether it's news or entertainment or sports or whatever, and make it much more easy to consume than this kind of reverse chronological, super fast, um, you know, series of 140-character tweets. Um, Maybe a
0: little more like Facebook.
2: Yeah, a little bit more, although, you know, because, of course, Facebook's news feed is directed by an algorithm. But this is actually... at least so far not personalised you know I see the same stories as anyone else does and it's just it it has an editing team who are trying to pull out what they think the whole world might want to find on Twitter Um, it's an interesting product and it you know it shows the sort of courage to get away from the reverse chronology which has been very controversial yesterday Kevin Wheel who is um, the SVP of Product spoke at a conference here in the Bay Area and said that they were also so happy to get rid of the 140 character limit on tweets, which again has for a long time been seen as really important and they would be sacrilegious to get rid of. So I think that what a lot of people hope is that by having the founder, the inventor of the tweet, it kind of gives you permission to make these big changes and not feel like you're doing something terrible to a product.
0: Right, and then of course, as Andrew referenced, you know, potential big changes afoot at Square, um, you know, with this IPO that they're eyeing. For a typical company, you know, a typical tech company, say that you know that IPO process. What are the demands on on the CEO's time? I mean, how how can you imagine them them splitting up that time, Andrew?
3: Well, I guess like any IPO, uh, there's a large amount of marketing involved. I mean, clearly, in the case of some tech companies that have already gone through several rounds of investment, they'll be familiar with how they do that marketing. The bringing in outside investors, though, for an IPO would uh, clearly involve a lot more f- further travel away from San Francisco, I'm guessing, to Wall Street and elsewhere in order to make the case uh, for Square. So that is going to um, suck up time. I mean, to Hannah's point about the, the value to both companies of having a founder on board or back on board. Um, I mean, I think clearly there is something in that because it does provide a sort of inspirational person to for everyone to look to. Um, there's an element of certainty. I, I would just still worry that in a way you've got certainty about half that person's time and half that person's attention. So that to me undermines the overall sense that you might have uh, that you've got somebody leading it strongly. And it's going to be the first question that any investor, new investor in Square and existing investors in Twitter is, is going to ask, certainly on a Square Roadshow. I would have thought the first thing they're going to ask is how much time is he going to devote to it. Certainly what I would ask.
0: Absolutely. And I think we'll be, we'll be looking to see how Jack answers that. Uh, Andrew Hill, Hannah Kushler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
3: Thanks.
1: Hey listeners, it's Cardiff Garcia again, and up next, our very own producer Amy Keen is here with me in the studio. We're going to talk about her Vox Pop segment at the Pub Quiz on Wednesday night. Amy, how are you? I'm good. In front I, of the mic,
4: I am. I'm in front of the mic and behind the desk at the same time.
1: But earlier this week, you were also you were you were sort of doing everything. Okay, you were producing a Vox Pop segment with the attendees of our amazing pub quiz.
4: Yeah, what was great is that everybody was so geared up for the night that, you know, they'd been studying for weeks, reading Alphaville posts. But I think I had two of the most important questions, actually. I had two questions for the FT pub quiz attendees on Wednesday night. First question, when and why should Janet Yellen and the Federal Reserve Board raise interest rates?
2: I think she should have raised
1: rates a long time ago. AZ, I'm here from New York. I work for a hedge fund.
4: Oh, raise them for
3: sure. I'm Joe Weisenthal. I'm a uh, editor and co-host on Bloomberg TV. I never feel comfortable second-guessing uh, such a brilliant and esteemed and accomplished economist. I think it would have been totally fine for her to go in September. I don't think I think I don't think it would have hurt the economy much. I think pretty much any time the economy can handle it, it won't have much of a negative effect.
4: But there was also a little bit of dissent amongst those in the crowd.
3: I don't think the world economy is ready for
1: it. Growth is falling off a cliff. China is slowing down. Emerging markets are blowing up. The U.S. can barely... The U.S. is producing a lot of jobs that are not very good. So there's no wage growth. There's no inflation anywhere to be seen. And there's nothing in the data that shows they can be confident that they're going to get to their inflation mandate. So, no, they shouldn't raise rates. Also, credit markets are blowing up.
4: Um, My name's Lynette Lopez. I work for Business Insider. Personally, I think we are in a global deflationary cycle right now. I think she should hold for as long as she possibly can. March is on the table. March is on the table, baby. And my other question, the Chinese economy, is it headed for a crash or a soft landing?
3: A soft landing, I think. Definitely. I don't really know why. I just watch I watch a lot of charts. I am a technical analyst, or I aspire to be one. And uh, to me, it's found to bottom. I'm Stefan Cheplik, and I'm from San Francisco.
2: It's a crash, but they'll continue to lie about it for as long as they can. Colby.
1: <laughs> you don't see that in- incredible amount of credit creation and leverage without any sort of... Um, Hard landing. China,
4: yeah. Headed for a crash or a soft landing. Zombie mode. That's what it's headed for. Ten years of zombie mode, if not more, maybe twelve. They've got a lot of deleveraging to do. It doesn't seem like the economy is going to allow them to do it. The more more debt's going to pile on, and uh, it's not going to be cute. Again, this was a crowd with different opinions. But the one thing that everybody could agree on was the star power of Paul Volcker, former chairman of the Federal Reserve. He seemed to be enjoying the night as well.
2: I'm actually here to my news.
4: From a pub in New York City, I'm Amy Keene for the Financial Times.
5: Hey, listeners,
1: it's Cardiff Garcia again. And for the last segment of Alpha Chat, we are going to run another clip from my conversation with Martin Wolf. In this clip, he talks about secular stagnation and its implications for monetary policy. Here it is. And I guess one of the reasons that this topic is so important also is that it relates to one of the big themes that economists and economic commentators have been talking about in the last few years secular stagnation. It was, I think, repopularized by Larry Summers, but of course, it was an idea also dating back to the 1930s. But it's basically the idea that you can either have financial stability or you can have adequate economic growth, but you can't have both for structural reasons. And I think you are fairly agnostic on the extent to which secular stagnation is a permanent phenomenon. But do you want to talk about your own views on uh, how much it's affecting economic growth, especially in advanced economies now?
5: I think it is clear, and I didn't have the nerve to use this term, but it's been clear, and was a central theme of my writing as a columnist and also in this book, that we have suffered from chronically weak demand for a very long time, since long before the crisis, and that's one of the reasons monetary policy had been really quite aggressive even before the, the crisis, except for a relatively brief period from 2000, late 2004 to 2006, uh, uh, and, uh, and that's been made worse by the consequences of the crisis. Um, debt overhangs, damage to the financial sector, damage to confidence, all pretty clear. So the effect of this is that in the major developed countries, uh, aggregate demand has been tended to be really very weak. And in recent years, the single most potent indicator of that is we've pursued what would be by most historical standards extremely expansionary monetary policies with incredibly low intervention rates near zero and uh, and, uh, rapid expansions of balance sheets of the central banks so-called quantitative easing, with really remarkably little effect on demand. I mean, demand has been between weak and very weak. So that suggests there is a sort of chronic demand problem in our economies. And that's what secular stagnation is about. It's not about supply, though that's relevant too. It's about demand relative to supply. And it seems to me the clearest indication that we have a serious demand problem relative to supply is how low equilibrium interest Rates seem to be. And of course, this is reinforced and underpinned by how low long term real rates seem to be um, in the neighborhood of zero and have been for years. The, the monetary environment we've had since 2008, um, so now getting on for uh, seven years, has no precedent as far as we can see. It's the most expansionary in, in design ever with so little consequence. So I think that's secular stagnation. That's where we are. Uh, uh, I think it's because of, um, we've discussed a few of them, not all, of profound shifts in the world economy. Uh, I think the evidence seems to suggest it's going to be enduring. Indeed, it seems to me quite possible, though not certain, that what's happening in China today will reinforce it. Uh, It looks as though China is moving in the same direction. Uh, Let me again emphasize it's about the the growth of uh, demand relative to potential output, so it doesn't mean complete stagnation, um, it's just a collapse of demand relative to the growth of potential output. And um, it does seem that we need incredibly aggressive policy to sustain a reasonable level of demand. And uh, maybe we'll get another financial sector boom going, you know, that's the financial instability point, but that could uh, just start a lead us to another big crisis. Now, there are really radical things you can do about this. Um, And the most radical one actually brings us right back to our discussion of 100% reserve banking or uh, government creation. of The money supply is, of course, an idea promulgated famously by Milton Friedman, uh, which is you take the whole business of creating money out of the hand of the private sector on an emergency basis, you, uh, and he called it helicopter money, you just distribute money from helicopters, well, that's not obviously what we would do, but we would basically just send money to people. And the central bank would fund that, and it would be a permanent increase in the monetary base. Uh, and the people would no doubt spend, and we would get rid of the demand problem. But, of course, people are very terrified of the longer-term consequences of that in many different ways, and no one yet dared to say they're explicitly doing it, though I sort of suspect when we look back 30 years from now, we'll have seen that the Japanese are doing that now, uh, though they pretend they're not. But the it's not that there is nothing we can do in this second. We can go to more negative rates, uh, you know we, we don 't zero isn 't the lower bound we can go to negative rates. we can see uh, that we can change the inflation target though i don 't think that would help much uh, to lower real interest rates further, uh, but we are sort of getting to the point where it, it is reasonable to worry that conventional or even unconventional conventional policies aren 't enough and if we have one more, and this is a point I made very recently in the column. It seems to me one more serious negative shock for the world might well lead us into this sort of territory. And looking at the world economy right now, it's not terribly difficult to imagine such shocks are happening. And I presume that's why the Federal Reserve just now decided not to raise rates.
1: Right. So I I should mention that you write about this in the afterward to the shifts in the shocks, which you just finished. You kind of have like a a kind of ascending level of potency for monetary policy. You start with inflation targeting, which you think is better than what we have now, but wouldn't be that useful. And then you have nominal GDP targeting. And then on top of that, you have nominal GDP targeting backed by helicopter financing. Um, This, by the way, I should, full disclosure, this is also my preferred Um, my preferred way for the central bank to to move forward. But at the same time, I sort of understand the political objections here, which is that it looks an awful lot like the monetary authorities injecting themselves into fiscal policymaking. How do you get
5: around that? Well, I think this is what I've always felt. And uh, uh, in an ideal world, uh, if we were in an extreme crisis – I would rather this were done I, – I certainly would in the past have rather this were done by uh, cooperation between the two. So in that case, what would have happened is, uh, to put it very simply, the, central, the, the the fiscal authority decides to run a larger fiscal deficit, just slash taxes, uh, or if you're doing what Jeremy Corbyn calls people's QE, increases investment – uh, the government, the central bank buys the bonds, that's agreed with him, and the bonds are cancelled. And then it's essentially monetary financing of yeah. the fiscal deficit. It's a fiscal decision, and it's made in extreme uh, circumstances, and it continues until the problem goes away. Uh, the, and that gets around the fiscal cooperation problem. But if you think that the fiscal authorities are not prepared to contemplate such an idea, uh, and cooperation will be very difficult. Um, you could possibly imagine, uh, the argument. this is at least the argument some friends of mine are putting forward, and I haven't de- yet written about it, so I haven't decided what I really think about it in terms of the politics, but basically say, look, you're doing this in order to raise inflation. That's a monetary policy objective. There's no doubt about it. Sure. And the uh, a central bank could be given... Uh, since it's part of the government, uh, this is an additional instrument, and uh, the obvious way to do that will be simply to say uh, the the central bank will be entitled to have from the uh, the tax authority the names of all taxpayers, uh, and uh, um, well, ideally you want the names of all citizens, um, certainly all adult citizens. Um, in countries which have large welfare states like ours, effectively, if you, they're part of the revenue system, so it will be everybody. The U.S. might be somewhat different, um, but you'd have to get around that from a technical point of view. And then you simply um, uh, decide to send, I don't know, $300 or $400 into every account. It would just appear, and they will be entitled to go and spend it. Uh, and it will be a monetary policy instrument In more or less the same way that when the central bank goes out and and buys trillions of dollars of U.S. bonds from the market, the money ends up in the accounts of all the people you sold the bonds. And they don't really ask whether it was created, how the Fed created it. Um, So you could argue that if it was given that authority, that this is basically in pursuit of a monetary policy objective, which is to get inflation up. And it will continue until the monetary policy objective is fulfilled. I think there are some problems with that from a political economy point of view, um, uh, but it will be acting under its delegated authority uh, from the political system to raise inflation. So I wouldn't be as worried about it as I was in the past. But I do think, you know, I wish I weren't. We weren't here, but it does seem to be where we here, where we sure. are. Hey, listeners,
1: it's Cardiff Garcia talking to you directly one last time. I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to Alpha Chatterbox, our long-form-only podcast about economics and business, where you can listen to all 90 minutes of my conversation with Martin Wolf. I really encourage you to. It was a great chat. And as always in the follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasek is here. Amelia, this is going to be kind of a weird follow-up segment because you are sort of critiquing yourself
6: here. I can't do that. No, you have to. No, 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 no. no, You were one of the stars of the show last week. No, I can't do that. It was a wonderful segment with us and, (laughs) and Marie Slaughter and everybody should listen. It was just perfect. There's nothing to add. But I did want to bring up something about one of the other segments, which was also really interesting. Emily Parker talking about Cuba and the internet. The
1: internet in Cuba and how access is expanding very slowly. Sure.
6: And the spread of information. So along those lines, Cardiff, I think that there should have been some information about your Cuban roots. Okay. Because that was the only thing that I thought was missing was... uh, A
1: personal touch,
6: if you will. Well, yeah, you showed a lot of depth of knowledge about Cuba without going into... (laughs) And proficiency in Spanish, and uh, how to use the internet cafe, and right. all of that kind of so, stuff. So,
1: yeah, so I guess I, I'll, I'll reveal it now. My parents were both born in Cuba. This is one of my pet topics. Uh, I did some reporting there, which I think I mentioned earlier this year, for the FT. Um, I guess, yeah, one, one of the tricky things about a segment like that is that we're putting the spotlight on Emily Parker's work. So if I inject myself too much into the conversation, it would feel a little... I don't know, a little too much me, you know,
2: mm-hmm. no a little too
1: narcissistic. <laughs> It'd be a little weird, but but I know what your point In other words, maybe a line or two saying, by the way, I'm Cuban, so I'm really fascinated in this, and maybe my enthusiasm would translate through to the listener, and they'd get interested because of that.
6: And also you have quite strong views about the expat community in America and the progress in Cuba. So, right, right. Yeah.
1: yeah, views are, I guess, split in that sense, right? The right and left are right and wrong. If you want to know more about that, go to the Financial Times and look up my op ed from last December. There, that's all about me right there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Too much. I'm getting uncomfortable. No,
6: no, no. no, Never (laughs) too much. Um, And uh, the other thing I want to bring up was um, the Alphabet quiz. You give give people, yeah, the pub quiz. So I gather people can get in on the action online with uh, your questions.
1: Indeed. So essentially, yeah, they can go to FT Alphaville and they can take an interactive quiz that includes some of the questions from the pub quiz. But there will also be some questions that were either too hard or just too damn wonky, even for an Alphaville run pub quiz. So definitely go to FT Alphaville. Take that. It's a lot of fun. And there's also going to be a few other posts about this uh, in the coming week or so. So look out for that. Amelia, this is always fun, all right? But if I'm going to talk about myself a little more, all right, next time I'm going to insist that you talk about yourself too when you were one of the co-hosts.
6: Well, If you have a Ukrainian-Greek segment, I can talk about my roots.
1: Okay, we'll do that sometime. (laughs) Okay, Okay? sounds good. All right, Amelia Mahasek, always a pleasure.
6: Thank you, Carter.
1: And that's all the time we have for today's show. This podcast is edited, produced by Amy Keene. Nobody has ever been more appropriately named than Amy Keene. Thanks so much, Amy. If you want to get in touch with us, and we'd really love for you to, you can call us at 917-551-5012. Leave a voicemail. Let us know if it's okay for us to play your voicemail on the air. Or you can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Finally, I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. You can find me there. Otherwise,
6: we'll see you next week.